Open your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 23. And, uh, you know, we're not too far off from finishing the book of Acts. And so be praying for me of what, what book we get into next, what, what that's going to be. Uh, excited, though, and also sad because I've really loved the book of Acts. And, you know, it's not done yet when we get sad yet, but uh, it's been great. So Acts tw- chapter 23, we're, we're continuing our study through the book of Acts. We're going to be uh, looking at a study I've titled Confidence for the Journey Ahead. Uh, our main text is Acts chapter 23, verses 11 through 35, so we're going to finish chapter 23 this morning. Just for some brief context, uh, if you didn't join us last week or, or listen to that study online, uh, Paul is in Jerusalem. He was really excited. He was, you know, bound in the spirit. There, there was this longing in, in Paul's soul to, to get an opportunity to be among his countrymen. His, his fellow Jewish people, no doubt hoping for some opportunities to, to minister to the believers, no doubt hoping to have some opportunities to preach the gospel to, to other Jews who he longed to see experience the life-changing salvation of Jesus Christ. And, and he got some of those opportunities. He got it in like kind of the worst way possible. He gets a arrested by a mob and he's getting beat up and then the Roman soldiers intervene they they take him to go into the barracks and he he stops them like hey actually can I can I say a few words you know kind of a weird request the Roman commander grants his request and Paul gives his testimony starts starts sharing about his life and how Jesus met him and and saved him and, and but then the mob turns on him and, and that doesn't really work out very well. No one gets saved in that setting, that opportunity. And he gets taken in. He's about to get scourged. Thankfully, his Roman citizen, citizenship came in handy. Commander finds out he's a citizen and puts the brakes. Like, okay, gosh, we can't scourge this guy. That would be illegal. I could get in trouble for that. The next day, he goes and stands before the Sanhedrin and Another opportunity, man, not only did I get to preach to this crowd, I'm going to preach to the religious leaders. Like what, it'd be like us thinking like, gosh, if we got an opportunity to, to preach the gospel to, 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 the, to the senators and congressmen, and we, we have this huge audience, these people who are so influential in, in sort of the affairs of our country, well, that was this religious council. They were the influencers of the nation of Israel, as a, as a religious nation, the people of God. And, and yet that didn't turn out well either. He gets socked in the mouth early on, right after he gives his greetings. Stuff turns sideways really quick. The council becomes divided when Paul speaks up about having the hope of the resurrection of the dead, being a, a, a Pharisee in the past and still holding to the beliefs of the Pharisees in the present just biblical beliefs about the resurrection. He's going to get pulled to pieces. The commander's afraid, takes Paul away, brings him back to the barracks. Things have not turned out well. Paul, at a low point in his life and ministry, the last few days in Jerusalem, just being, like if you just think about like having some hope of something and, and some unmet expectations, that was like, Paul to the nth degree here in this point in his life. Jesus meets him in the night. And that's where we're going to pick up here again in verse 11 of Acts chapter 23, where we ended last week. Acts 23, verse 11, Luke records for us, but the following night the Lord stood by him, speaking of Paul. And said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Last week we considered this verse in light of Paul's need for encouragement. Again, that this would have been an extremely low point in his life and ministry as these 
two opportunities to share the gospel ended badly to the crowd and then to the Sanhedrin. No one recorded getting saved as a result of Paul's preaching. Paul needed to see Jesus standing with him. Needed to hear Jesus tell him in that moment, Paul, be of good cheer. Take courage. Take heart. Needed affirmation from Jesus about how he had testified in Jerusalem in his short time there. And and he needed courage to face Rome where he was going to testify to Jesus there as well. But I also want us to see that this was a, a pivotal point in Paul's life and ministry with him now being a prisoner basically for the rest of the time that Luke records for us in the book of Acts. Like Paul's now going to be known as Paul the prisoner. He's a prisoner. That's who he is. That's how people are going to identify him. We're going to see that Paul was in need of confidence for the journey that was ahead of him, which was going to be full of ups and downs, even as we're going to see this morning in our text. Confidence to keep standing and keep moving forward on mission for Jesus. And I'm sure many of us today are in need of the same sort of confidence. And our life situations are probably very different from one another even in that. The ways that maybe we need confidence to keep moving forward it might look different and yet uh, essentially is the same. We need to know that the Lord has got us and, and that he has a plan for us and, and, and to be able to just keep making our lives about him. Jesus' word to Paul in the night was definitely meant to strengthen and encourage him in his place of discouragement after what he had gone through in Jerusalem the last few days, but it was also in a lot of ways, a preventative and preparative word for Paul. It was preventative in the sense of maybe keeping Paul's heart from growing hard towards people. I mean, if we were honest and we were put in Paul's situation, where this isn't a new sort of thing, crowds being against Paul, crowds trying to kill Paul, people chasing Paul out of a city, People blaspheming the Lord because of Paul. Like, this has been sort of the normative experience of Paul's life. And it all revolves around people. It's always people that are at the center of everything that goes bad from a physical sense in Paul's life. And I think for us, if we were in Paul's shoes, it would, it would be hard for us to not grow bitter towards people to not distance ourselves from people, to not hold people at arm's length. Like, I don't, I just don't want to try as hard anymore. Like, how many times do people trying, like, people trying to kill you, how many times of that before you start going, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to keep loving people? I mean, that was true even with believers. Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he's like, Guys, my heart is wide open. The more that I love you, the less I'm loved by you. you imagine? That's a body of believers. Paul planted the church there. He was used instrumentally there in the city of Corinth. And, and Paul's writing later on. He's like, I love you guys. I've, I've loved you. And you guys just keep loving me less and less. That's, like a, that's tragic when I read that. And at what point do you start to like, your, your heart starts to kind of close up towards people. That's kind of, you know, our, our, our fight and flight like reaction is to want to like pull inward. Like I want to pull away from the things that are hurting me. Again, all people. Everything about Paul's life and ministry was people. And people were always at the forefront of the harm and the rejection, and the discouragement that Paul faced. And I think for us, we need that preventative sort of word that the Lord would speak into our lives because God's called us to the same sort of ministry, a ministry revolving around people. He didn't call us to 
encourage trees. He didn't call us. I mean, it's fine. You want to talk to your plants and all that? That's great. I'm not speaking against that. But like, our ministry is not towards inanimate objects. The only thing that's coming out of this life into heaven is the souls of people. That is the only thing that has any sort of eternal value. And you and I have been called to that. Called to people. And people can hurt us. And, and people can be discouraging. And people can offend us. And reject us. And reject us because of Jesus even. And, and to learn to not let our hearts grow hard towards people. To not close our hearts off towards people because the, the people oftentimes that are hurting us and offending us and rejecting us and, 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 and are, you know, maybe even against us in some ways are the very people that Jesus is saying, I want to save them and I want to use you to be a part of that plan so that those people are saved, which means that we have to keep ministering to people that oftentimes don't love us very much, or maybe even treat us very well. And, and I think, you know, if we've walked with the Lord for any amount of time, we get it like that has to be a work of the Lord in, in our hearts. Because it's natural for us to want to close off. We do that. When somebody shuts us off, we shut them off. You cut me off, I'm going to cut you out. You want to be cold towards me? Okay. Be warm and be filled, you know. Go with the, go without the, out the Lord, I guess. I don't know, like, fine, do you. Like, I'm going to keep doing, you know, but, but we, we need the Lord to keep our hearts soft towards people because, again, he's called us to people. He called Paul to people. So, uh, again, there's sort of a pre preventative word even here. Is he saying, I'm going to send you to Rome? What is he saying? You're going to keep having to minister to people that are going to reject you and that aren't going to receive you. But I want you to do it anyway. And I think in a lot of ways, we need to hear the Lord speak those things to us all the time. But, but also a preparative word, in the sense that bad things were going to continue to happen to Paul, like a plan to assassinate him, as we're going to look at this morning. Paul was going to need his heart strengthened by the Lord, confident in the Lord, to not lose heart when, when news of new opposition or new persecution came to him or, or a new crisis came about. And we need the Lord preparing us constantly. And I think there's different points probably in our lives where we can look back and go, wow, Lord, you are preparing me for this. You've been preparing me for this trial. You've been preparing me for this moment so that I can keep standing can keep moving forward, keep being confident in the Lord. Now, before this, Paul had actually planned and desired to go to Rome. He wrote about it in his letter to the Roman believers in Romans chapter 15. He's going like, actually, I really want to get to Spain, <laughs> but in order to get to Spain, I want to come to you guys. I want to come to, come to Rome. I want to be there. I want to pass through there. So he had, he had this desire in his heart to go to Rome, even though we don't see any specific promises from the Lord before this that the Lord was going to give Paul his heart's desire in going to Rome. But, but now the plan he hoped would happen was something he could be confident was going to happen because Jesus said, Paul, you're going to bear witness to me in Rome. Now, it's going to be close to three years before Paul actually makes it to Rome. Two of those years being spent being a prisoner in Caesarea, but what the Lord had said to Paul, he was going to make good on. Guys, when God is in something, no discouragement in our own minds, no opposition or plan of the enemy to take us out, is going to be able to stop what God is wanting to do, and it's not going to negate his promises towards you and me. Paul didn't need to freak out. He just needed to rest in what Jesus had said. And isn't that where we are at 
so often. We don't need some like new promise from the Lord. We just need to rest in the promises that he's already made. Just trust him at his word. But let's continue on. Let's look at verses 12 through 15 as things are now going to take a big change from that night meeting of Jesus with Paul. Verse 12, when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing till we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Notice in the beginning of verse 12 that Luke writes, and when it was day. Jesus had showed up that previous night, met with Paul, encouraged Paul, but the very next morning, that encouragement and confidence that Jesus had given Paul was going to be put to the test. You ever had the Lord encourage you with something, really bless you in some way, minister to your heart in some way, instill confidence in you towards him, but then the the next day, or maybe it's even that same day, maybe it's like an hour later, later that afternoon, that those things are tested by some new situation that arises or even maybe just some new discouraging thought that comes into your head? You ever, like, you're just stoked on the Lord, you, sh- you see God show up and then, like, literally, like, the next day, you're, it, it's as if the Lord had never done the thing that he did the day before. (laughs) You know, you're all worked up all over again, like about some new thing and and that other thing that the Lord did or that encouragement that the Lord brought just kind of like gets tossed to the back seat. Those are are natural sorts of, of reactions. You know, for Paul, this came in the form of more than 40 Jewish assassins who took an oath. You know, this wasn't them going like they put their hand on the Bible, I swear to kill Paul. Amen. No, it's like (laughs) they took an oath before the Lord. Basically, it was an oath that carried a curse for them if they didn't carry it out. We're going to be cursed. And, And in some ways, it was like, we're going to die because we're swearing, we're taking an oath that we're not going to eat or drink anything. How long does that sort of thing last? Like, well, you just die. Like, you could only go like five days without water, right? So th- this, was, this was a serious sort of oath for them to take. These assassins were committed and, and their hunger and their thirst would only be motivation for them to get their plan seen through to completion. And not only did these Jewish assassins come up with this plan and take this oath together, they they brought the chief priests and the elders into their plan. Now, given the reaction of the Sanhedrin the day before, this probably wasn't the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees actually were in the camp of going... Like, there's no evil in Paul. Maybe God spoken to him. Maybe an angel showed up to him. Like, we don't want to be found fighting against God. This is likely the chief priests and the Sadducees who, who didn't believe in any of the things that Paul believed in. They are a part of this plan now and playing a part in, in the, the assassin's plot to get rid of Paul and requesting that the Roman commander bring Paul to meet with them the next day so they could talk to him some more. Except that when Paul was brought to them in their plan, on the way to the area that the meeting was going to take place, 
that they would be waiting and ready to kill him. One commentator said that in Paul's day, there were these Jewish assassins that were known as knife men. These men had, would carry daggers in their cloak and they were basically looking for any opportunity to get rid of uh, Romans and, and Roman sympathizers. And they were so good at what they did that they would come and be able to basically s- stick somebody in the throat, kill them quickly, put the dagger back in and keep walking without getting noticed. So th- these people were kind of a known group maybe even in, in Paul's day and even in Jesus's day. And, and for whatever reason of their own, they also hate Paul. They also want to kill Paul. And so now they've conspired together with the chief priests and some of these elders to get their plans seen through to completion. And, and though Luke doesn't tell us explicitly, it's clear that the chief priests and the elders agreed to this, which again just reveals how corrupt this ruling religious body had become. But the assassins had made their pact. They formulated their plan. They got at least part of the Sanhedrin involved. And and Paul's life now is very much in danger. And yet Paul knows nothing about any of this. The only thing Paul knows is Jesus showed up to him the night before. And hey, I'm feeling pretty good this morning. You imagine like you're kind of riding that high from the night before spiritually. Jesus was standing by you and... Now this, and so let's, let's see, let's see verse, six, verse 16. It says, so when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. We've never heard about this before. There's no other mention in the book of Acts that Paul had a sister and a nephew. This is really the only information that we know about Paul's family life, except for the fact that Paul was single, which even then it's possible that Paul had been married before. There are Bible scholars who speculate that Paul was actually a part of the Sanhedrin as a Pharisee, as he talked in one point about casting his vote against uh, Stephen when Stephen was murdered that that casting of the vote would have been something that he only could have done if he was part of the Sanhedrin. And that to be a part of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. So that kind of opens a whole can of worms of what happened to Paul's wife. Did she die? Did she leave him because he became a Christian? Is that why Paul kind of writes what he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 7? We don't know. So there you go. I say all that to say, speculate all you want, but none of us are going to know. So... He did have a sister, and he did have a nephew. Uh, But Luke doesn't tell us how Paul's nephew heard of the ambush, the assassination plot. We do know that Paul's father was also a Pharisee. uh, So could have been they were part of sort of a very religious and uh, influential family. But Paul's nephew did hear, came to the Antonio Fortress, went into the barracks, told his uncle Paul what he had heard, but, but I want us to understand that Paul was faced with a decision at this moment. He was either going to trust the word that Jesus gave to him the night before, or he was going to lose trust in Jesus and be filled with doubt and discouragement and maybe even depression at the word that came regarding the plot of the assassins because this would have messed any one of us up if we were in Paul's shoes here. I mean, as great as it would have been to have Jesus standing with me and speaking words to me, like to hear that there's more than 40 assassins that were going to kill me, I would be, I'd be, at the very least, I'd be saying, Lord, why? Like, what happened? What happened in the last, like, 12 hours, Lord? What, like, what did you mean? When you said, be of good cheer, like, what did you mean by that? Be of good cheer because you're going to get killed by assassins. Like, 
when you said I'm going to get to Rome, did you mean in a body bag? Like, am I going to be taken there as a corpse? You know, like, how am I getting transported? I guess you didn't tell me that part. You did say I was going to testify, but maybe just me being a dead body is going to be part of me bearing witness. I don't know. What kind of things would roll through your head at this moment as your nephew comes to you and, and tells you this whole plan? Like, it, it probably would, at the very, it would at least affect you a little bit, right? It, it, it kind of might mess you up just a little bit. And, you know, most of us will never be faced with this sort of situation to make this sort of decision, you know, assassins plotting to take us out because of our witness for Jesus. But in different ways, we're, we're all faced with decisions of whether we are going to trust the Lord or not all the time. Are we going to trust the word of God or are we going to let our circumstances or our emotions or, or what someone else is telling us cause us to doubt or to disregard the word of God. You know, maybe we feel less like the Apostle Paul and more like the prophet Elijah who we've been reading about in our daily Bible reading in, in 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah who had experienced great victory over the false prophets of Baal in the previous chapter. Clearly the hand of God, clearly the Lord at work. He's, you know, has water poured all over his altar in the sacrifice like three times over, like a little moat around it full of water. Like the worst possible circumstances to have fire happen. The thing's just completely soaked. Calls out to the Lord. Lord brings fire from heaven. He consumes not just the sacrifice, but the altar itself. All the prophets of Baal are killed. So now all the prophets, the false prophets have been taken out in the land, at least at that moment. This great victory, this great moment of seeing God clearly work. I mean, if we were in Elijah's situation, how could we come away with anything else? It's clearly supernatural. Fire doesn't just come down from heaven. And, and yet it did. God did that. As, as Elijah called out to the Lord, God did that. And then the very next chapter, the very next verse after that, King Ahab's wife, Jezebel, sends a message to Elijah God help me if I don't make you like those prophets of Baal that you killed. You're going to die, Elijah. And Elijah gets the message, again, coming off the heels of that great moment of victory, that great move of God. And Elijah runs. He's fearful. He runs. He hides under a tree. And you know what he does? He throws a pity party. He goes, God, what? Just kill me. Just take my life. <laughs> he, he takes a couple naps. I love the story of Elijah. He takes two naps. God sends an angel, feeds him after the first nap. You know, takes him, eat this, drink this. Paul, or Paul, Elijah takes another nap right after that. Wakes up. Angel feeds him again. It, he goes in the power of that food for 40 days, uh, we're told. But he runs again. He runs and he's hiding in this cave. God shows up and God doesn't go, what's your problem, dude? Don't you remember how I brought fire from the sky? Don't you remember how I, we got rid of all the prophets of Baal? Don't you remember how you heard word that there was another hundred prophets that were hidden by this guy who was working for Ahab, who wasn't on board with Ahab's plan. Don't you remember how he, he doesn't say that to Elijah? He goes, Elijah, what are you doing? Lord, I'm alone and left. No one else is serving you like me. Basically, that's what Elijah says. I'm the only one who hasn't bowed their knee to Baal, God. 
I'm alone. No one else is spiritual like me. No one loves you like me. No one's committed to you like me. It's basically kind of the heart behind what Elijah says. And God just goes, hey, I've got, I've got a lot of other people, thousands of people who have not bowed their knee to Baal. You're not alone. And he just recommissions him. Go. Go anoint this guy. Go anoint this guy. And go anoint Elisha, who's going to take your place after you. But, you know, I think about that, and it's like, you know, we see Paul, and we don't see a reaction written for us here. We know that Paul was discouraged only because of what Jesus said in bringing, be of good cheer, Paul. So he wouldn't say it if Paul didn't need the encouragement. He wouldn't just say it to say it. But as we read this, we know maybe how we would react. We might not feel as strong as Paul at times. We might feel like Elijah. We're just like, I need a couple naps. I need a couple good meals. Just let me eat some good food. Let me sleep for a little bit. But ultimately what we need, just like Elijah, was a, was a, was a meeting with the Lord, was an encounter with the true and living God, was for God to meet us where we were at, to, for him to speak to us in his still small voice and to tell us that we're not alone, to tell us to keep going. And that sort of confidence that Elijah needed was the same confidence that Paul needed is the same confidence that you and I need all the time. And maybe we need a nap too. And maybe we need a good meal. Glass of OJ or water. I'm not a big OJ guy. But you know, something refreshing to keep us going. Now, Paul could have grabbed a hold of this word that 40 plus assassins were plotting his death. He could have let it overshadow the fact that God had allowed his nephew to overhear this plot, just ignore the fact that God was looking out for him, but he didn't. In this situation with Paul's nephew, which, you know, don't get the wrong idea, when we read the, the, the phrase young man and then we see the commander in a little bit taking him by the hand, we get this picture in our mind maybe that like he's just a little kid. But this young man could actually mean that he was in his 20s or even 30s, which even from biblical standards, I'm no longer a young man, but that's okay. <clears throat> Life goes on. But <laughs> this situation reminds us of God's sovereignty and his providence that God with great wisdom and power and love was orchestrating things behind the scenes so that Paul's nephew would be just at the right place at the right time to hear this important conversation so that Paul would know what was being plotted against him. I don't know about you, but I need the Lord to help me to see how he's working supernaturally in natural moments. Because there are things that happen that just don't blatantly look like the Lord did something. It, it's not blatantly like a, a, a divine intervention of the Lord, a, a, you know, the power of God at work. Sometimes it just looks really ordinary. But, but, I, but would God help us to see his supernatural work in the natural realm, and sometimes in natural sorts of means. It's not the fire from heaven. Sometimes it's someone coming and hearing something at just the right time. It doesn't seem very supernatural. We wouldn't go like, oh, wow, God, you, you moved that kid right, that, that young man right where he was supposed to be. He heard that thing. Lord, that was you. We might just go, wow, that was a coincidence. How many times do we say, oh, that was a coincidence, and God's going like, dude, give me the credit. That was me. That wouldn't have even worked out if I wasn't involved in it. You wouldn't have heard that. You wouldn't have got that job. That relationship wouldn't have worked out. You wouldn't have got that check that showed up in the mail. You wouldn't have felt better, better that day, that moment. Like, and we just go, well, it just kind of worked out. I just wonder from God's perspective if he's like, just looking around at us like this at times. Like, 
hello? Do I need to give you a sign in the sky every time? Like, that was me. And we're like, oh, oh, that was you, Lord. I thought it was just a coincidence. I think we need, to, we, need to, we need to be praying that. Lord, help me to see your divine hand in my circumstances on a day-to-day basis so that I can glorify you as you deserve. So when we see those things and we take notice of those things and we recognize that it's God, what does that do in our hearts? It, it brings us to a place of, of worshiping him. And we rob him of his worship when we just relegate things to natural happenstance. Lord, help us. Help, help, help us to see you more. But Paul didn't let this terrible news overshadow the fact that God was clearly looking out for him. And, and he knew that the Roman commander needed to, to know about this. Let's continue on. Verses 17 through 22. Verse 17, then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him aside, by, or took him by the hand, went aside, and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. So we just see this, chain of events, Paul telling the centurion for the centurion to bring his nephew to the commander. The commander talks to his nephew and then, you know, eventually the commander telling him, hey, don't, 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 say, don't say anything. Like, we don't want anybody to know that we know. But, you know, notice in verse 21, Paul's nephew interceded for him, asking the commander to not yield to them. We don't, we don't know if Paul's nephew was a Christian or his sister was a Christian, but regardless, the Lord was using this young man to be a voice to speak up for Paul to keep him from harm. And obviously, the commander believed his nephew. And, you know, it, it's not one of those things where, like, this commander was just a really believing person. He just believed people. He believed him because the mob already tried to kill Paul. The Sanhedrin wanted to kill Paul. So when he hears now that there's assassins wanting to kill Paul, it seemed like, yeah, that's probably about right. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. <laughs> now, from a purely physical and, and temporal perspective, it, it, it could be hard for us to see how anything good could come out of this situation with the assassins. And yet God was going to use this to move Paul out of Jerusalem to get him to Caesarea where he would stand and testify before King Agrippa, which was going to be a fulfillment of what God spoke about Paul 20 years earlier, that he would stand before kings and then ultimately move Paul on to where he would finally get to Rome, where as a prisoner he would write some really important and powerful letters preserved for us in the pages of Scripture and then get to stand before Caesar Nero, but let's see how this commander responds in verses 23 through 30. Verse 23, and he called for two centurions, saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night, and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. He, he wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before the council, their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. 
And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. The, the commander who we finally get a name for, named Claudius Lysias, had a plan to protect his prisoner, which he quickly set in motion. But I want us to see in this plan that ultimately the Lord is using this Gentile Roman officer to help provide protection and deliverance for Paul. Claudius Lysias sets in motion this plan for 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. So these are, we've got 470 total trained Roman military soldiers. They're going to take Paul at the third hour of the night. This is 9 p.m., they're going to put Paul on horseback and bring him safely to Felix the governor in Caesarea. But through all of this, no doubt God was going to make it clear to Paul that he was the one protecting Paul by having this huge military, military escort getting him to Caesarea, that only God could do something like this. And this would have given Paul even greater confidence that God really was going to get him to Rome and that nothing could thwart God's plan. But as we read the, the, the contents of Claudius Lysias' letter, which Luke records for us in verses 26 through 30, you know, clearly Lysias modified the account of what really happened. He makes himself out to be the hero of the story. Notice that he talks about himself a lot he says, I did this, and, and it was me who did this, trying to make it seem that he rescued Paul because he knew that he was a Roman citizen, which we know was not accurate. He only found out that he was a Roman citizen after <laughs> he was going to try and scourge him illegally. But even here, this Roman commander shares that he believes Paul is innocent, that the issues the Sanhedrin had with Paul were concerning questions about Jewish law, but that he hadn't done anything worthy of deserving death or chains. But this was, this was an important letter for Luke to include because of verse 29, that this Roman commander believed Paul was innocent. And, and with this, Luke, continuing throughout the book of Acts, to record important instances where Roman officials made it clear that Paul and the gospel message and Christianity itself were not in opposition to Rome and were not an illegal religion. And this was an important thing for, for Luke to include here in his letter, in Claudius Lysias' letter. But now that the plans and preparations have been made, this letter has been written, Let's continue on now into our last verses, verses 31 through 35. It says, Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. When the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from, and when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium or Herod's palace. Paul has been sent out of cities secretly at night two times already before this because of people plotting his death. So this wasn't really a new thing for Paul. Paul was kind of an old hat with like secret night getting swept out of the city sort of things. But, but never has he been sent out this way with this level of protection. Now, the most difficult and dangerous part of the road for this security escort in Paul was actually the, the section of road from Jerusalem to this town called Antipatris. It, it was a section of 35 miles and they, they did it at night because they didn't want to do it in the day when, the, when it would be really clear. Like, oh, there he goes. 
there's Paul riding off, and the assassins can kind of like truck up next to him and like start doing their thing. They did it at night. They did it under the cover of darkness. But that, that, that section of 35 miles of, of land was really difficult and treacherous, and it would have been really easy for the assassins to, to hide or, or find places to ambush. And so the reason why all of the escort only went to that point and then only a smaller amount went the rest of the way was because the, the, the other part of the road from Antipatris to Caesarea was more open. It was more open land. They could easily spot if the assassins were coming. And so not all the security escort was really needed for the rest of the travel. But man, they, they trucked it. Like they put Paul on horseback and they just, they went as fast as they could through the night. They left at 9 p.m. They're going all through the night. Another 27 miles from Antipatris to Caesarea. They get Paul to Caesarea. They deliver him in the letter to Felix, the governor. Felix, not the cat, finds out Paul is from at least a jurisdiction that would have been something he would have had authority to to, to hear and bring a trial to. He commands Paul to be kept in Herod's Praetorium. And, and if you've ever traveled to Israel, I know someone just recently said, hey, you should take us on a, uh, a trip to Israel sometime. I would love to do that. It takes a lot of planning and it's not cheap, uh, but it would be awesome. But if you've ever gone to Israel, Caesarea Maritime is beautiful. It's an amazing, amazing spot. There's still some ruins from Herod's Praetorium there. And uh, so, you know, it wasn't the worst p- place to be kept as a prisoner. He probably didn't have the worst conditions either to be kept in at this point. It wasn't like being in Philippi where he was in the inner dungeon with his hands and feet in stocks. But notice that Felix wasn't even willing to listen to Paul at first. He's like, look, when your accusers come and they, they bring accusations, I'm going to hear their accusations, which is a kind of a weird way to do it, right? Like, don't you want to hear from the person first who's kind of like at the forefront of this whole situation? But he wants to have his accusers come, which means the Sanhedrin's going to come again. Another trial before the Sanhedrin, which is actually not even going to be the last one for Paul. But as we're going to see next week, Felix was not a good guy. Paul is now... In his custody, he's here in Caesarea. And, the, and it's in Caesarea where Paul's going to gain some really amazing opportunities to preach the gospel to Roman officials before being sent on to Rome. He's going to spend the next two years in custody in Caesarea. And yet in the midst of the restrictions and confinement that Paul's now going to have, uh, Paul is going to embrace those things. He's going to embrace his chains as he sees God's purposes in those things to get his gospel out even more. You know, the Lord has a way of being able to take difficulty and opposition and trials and suffering and, and, and use those things to, to mobilize us and get us on board with him and, and his will and, and get us moving so that, we're, so that we're going with the flow of what his spirit is doing or wanting to do. But I want to ask us some questions here as we come to a close this morning. You know, what, what happens when the Lord standing with us means that we still face difficulty? D- does it make his promises less true? Is Paul, you know, he had the Lord stand with him, but he's now he has this assassin plot. What, what happens when the Lord encourages us, but, but he doesn't lead us out of situations where we're going to be faced with potential discouragement? Does, does, does it make his encouragement less relevant or needed? What, what happens when the Lord wants to lead us into areas where we're going to feel less comfortable? And maybe more restricted or more stretched and where faith is going to be even more required for our daily living. Does it, does it make his plan less trustworthy? What do we do when we don't see the fulfillment 
of the promises that God has made to us, whether personally or, or that we see in his word? Or, or, or what, what, if, what do we do when, when, when the Lord seems delayed? Do we doubt? Do we discard those promises or, or his word? Or do, we, or do we trust that what God has said, he's going to do? You know, just as Jesus gave Paul confidence for the journey ahead of him, Jesus wants to, the, to do the same for you and for me. He wants us to be a confident people, not a self-confident people. There, there's a difference there, right? You can have self-confidence. I can do it. I'm going to make it happen. I can push through. Not, not that. But a, but a confidence in him. A confidence in his care, a confidence in his power, a confidence in his wisdom, in his plan, in his ways, a confidence in his presence, a confidence in his promises. That you and I would not be a people who are just blown around, that we're not in a fetal position in the corner of a room just feeling crippled and unable to even move forward at all. No, he wants us to be a people who are standing strong in the grace of Jesus. He wants to be, us to be a people who are able to keep moving forward each day because we know who our God is. We, we've seen his track record in the past and it gives us confidence in the present and it gives us hope for the future. That's to be us. That's what God's wanting to do with each of us. And in those moments where we are more like Elijah than like Paul at times, God's gracious, he's gentle, and he'll tell us, hey, take a nap, <laughs> eat a snack, have a good meal, take a drink of water, go on a hike, but most importantly, meet with me. And he just wants us to find in him everything that we need. Amen? I'm going to have the worship team come back up. Look in closing. You know, we, we each have a journey. We're each on a journey. Each of us have different obstacles. Each of us have different things. This, this life of faith, if we take what Paul writes about with running a race, that we're in a marathon. I don't like to run. I know some of you do. Jolie, like runner extraordinary. Like I think about people who are like enjoy running and I'm like, I feel tortured if I have to run anywhere. Elliptical, it like fools me. I feel like it's, it's not the same. It's because it's not, but... But we're, we're running a race. And, and we've got these things. We, we face things in this life of faith, this, this race of faith as we're looking, all, we're all looking to Jesus. Yes, we have our different lanes, but we're all looking to the same one. We're looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And, and we've got obstacles. We've got hurdles. There's things that we face. There's suffering and trials and, and discouragement and things are hard at times but, but we know this morning that we're not alone. Not only do we have Jesus, we have each other. We're running together. We might be in different lanes, but we're running together, and we all have the same goal. It's Jesus. It's to be with Jesus, and Jesus is looking to each one of us this morning, and he's saying, keep going. Keep trusting. Keep looking to me. And to go, okay, Lord, if you've got me, if you're with me, that I can have confidence right now. Right now. You might not feel confident about tomorrow. You might not feel confident about a year from now or five years from now or 10 years from now. But the Lord wants you to have confidence for today in who he is and what he said. So whether we're like Paul or Elijah, know that God is for us, that he's with us, and he wants to minister to each one of us.
whatever is going on in our lives. And, and what an amazing thing that he knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Probably not 40 assassins coming to get any of us, unless you're playing some video game with assassins in it. Like, I feel like Paul right now as you're playing. Anyways, anyways, whatever. But the Lord knows. The Lord knows. He's not shocked by it. It's not going to take him by surprise. He's not going to go, oops. Oh, shoot, I didn't see that coming. He knows already. Be of good cheer. Take heart. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul, the example of Elijah even. Lord, we're thankful that Jesus, you stand with us, Lord, that you want to encourage us, that you want to give us confidence for the journey ahead. Just as you did with Paul. Lord, help us to see your supernatural work in the natural realm. Lord, to see when you're moving and orchestrating things, Lord, sovereignly in your providence, God, that we wouldn't just brush those things off as ordinary, as coincidence, as luck. But Lord, help us to see you in those things, to give you the praise, to give you the worship, Lord, that you deserve. Lord, help us to see how you are protecting us, providing for us, how you're leading and directing us, Lord, how you're seeking to empower us, Lord. God, would you make us a a people who are confident, confident in you, Lord, confident in in your word, your promises. That, God, we'd be able to face those things head on. Lord, we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, Lord, but, but we know that you're going to be with us. Lord, we know that we're not going to be alone. We know, Lord, that you're going to be trustworthy. So, Lord, help us to keep going. Lord, help us to not have our hearts grow cold towards people. Lord, but that our hearts would be soft and open so that, Lord, you can use us to minister, Lord, to others. Lord, maybe there's some even this morning, Lord, who have joined us who don't don't have a personal relationship. They don't have that confidence, Lord, that their sins are forgiven, their debt's been paid. They've never put their faith in you, Lord Jesus. God, I pray for those that even now where they're at, Lord, they would just stand and be able to say, that's that's me. I I need my sins forgiven. I need my, my debt paid. I, I, I want to know that heaven is in store for me when this life ends. Just encourage you as you've done that to, to know that Jesus just wants you to repent of your sin, to turn away from those things that are actually keeping you from him, to turn towards him fully in faith, to put your trust in him, to believe in your heart, to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus died for you, that Jesus rose from the grave. To ask him to forgive you and to save you, to make you a new creation in Christ Jesus, to seal you with his Holy Spirit, that you would have the confidence of scripture, that those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, those who believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. So Lord, would you do that this morning? Would you speak to hearts? And God, for those of us who are just in need of a confidence boost in you, Lord, need of encouragement, Lord, in need of maybe a perspective change on our current circumstances, 
or on our future. Lord, would you strengthen each and every one. Lord, Lord, whether we feel more like Paul or more like Elijah, God, be gracious and merciful to us. Lord, meet us where we're at today. And Lord, keep us going. Lord, keep us trusting. Lord Jesus, keep us looking to you. And Lord, would you hold us close? Lord, would you uphold us, Lord, by, by your righteous right hand? And God, would you move powerfully in our circumstances, Lord, in our situations, Lord, even in just the, our, our minds, Lord, where, where often the battle is taking place. Lord, we need you. Lord, we're thankful that you're with us, that you got us. And so, Lord, we just give you praise, Lord, for your word today, Lord, for your work in our lives. And God, we pray that you would go before us and, Lord, keep us on mission for you, Lord Jesus, that we'd be about your kingdom, about your gospel. And, Lord, as we sing these songs of praise, Lord God, fill our hearts with just a greater understanding of who you are. Lord, that we'd be more, even more mindful of you. And God, that we'd worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you, Lord. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.